Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Why do we have insights when our mind is quiet? How do insights play a role in our ability to learn? And when do they impact the trajectory of our lives? Welcome to Insight Out, where we explore these questions and dissect how insights influence who we are and ultimately who we become. I interview New York Times bestselling authors and some of the most influential minds of our time to find out what insights have helped to make them who they are. When I realized that the world worked in many different ways, I'm going to choose to create a life that is specifically designed for me. I see infinite capacity to think and create. That's the magic that we all have. You can tap into that any point in your life. You just have to decide to do it. And as a leader, you have to be a transition figure. As Dr. Covey said, be a light, not a judge. Be a model, not a critic. If you're like me, constantly working to design a life that will allow you to reach your fullest potential so that you can leave your mark on this planet, then you're in the right place. I'm glad to have you on this journey and hope you enjoy this episode of Inside Out. My brain hurts. I love people who do that to me. I love people who make my brain hurt. And my guest today, David Burkus, is one such person because he makes you think. He's an author of not one, not two, not three or four, but five best-selling books. He, like my guest Liz Wiseman, is ranked on the Thinkers 50 list as one of the world's top business thought leaders. And they, funny, funny enough, they actually call him the Bruce Wayne of management thinkers. And you'll hear why during the show. His work has been featured just about everywhere. The Wall Street Journal, Harvard Business Review, USA Today, Fast Company, Bloomberg, Business Week, CNN, the BBC. I'm out of breath now. NPR, the list goes on and on and on. He's TED Talk has been viewed over 2 million times. In fact, he's got multiple TED Talks. Probably the thing I appreciate most about David is that he's not afraid to challenge the status quo and all the conventional wisdom that exists out there in the world of business. Today, we talk a lot about these concepts, especially the concepts that he outlines in his new book, Leading From Anywhere, The Essential Guide to Managing Remote Teams. Talk about a timely book. I know that he started writing it post-COVID and is about to release it right after New Year. So here's some of the golden nuggets that we talk about. We talk about just the history of remote work. We go back about 40 years and look at the evolution of what was telework and now is remote work. We talk about why we should challenge the assumption that presence equals productivity. And he shares what he thinks is the future for in-person offices. We explore this concept, and man, I love this concept so much, called work sprints. And I've already applied it in my own life. So we're going to dive in on that. We also talk about how to handle distractions, how to set boundaries. And we talk about why it's so important for a company to create a shared identity, to really look at how we can talk about and believe in a common cause, something worth fighting for as an organization. There's so much covered in this book. One of the things that we talk about in this show are these four ideas he has for helping remote staff feel included, which we know is really important. The other thing that's really important is trust. So we talk about trust and we talk about communication. You have to have communication, especially in a remote environment. I absolutely enjoyed my conversation with David. This definitely ranks as one of my favorites. So I'm so excited. Without further ado, let's jump straight into the conversation. David, welcome to Inside Out. Oh, thank you so much for having me. All right, we're going to start with a really hard one. Is it true that the job that you really want is to be Batman? <laughs> well, yeah, actually, that's pretty true. I wrote a book called Friend of a Friend where I talk about, I go on this rant in the book about how much I hate the what do you do question as a way to introduce people. And so the question that I actually think gets the most play for me, I'm a bit of a nerd, is I'll ask people who your favorite superhero is. The right answer to me is Batman. I would accept Iron Man because they're actually the same character, right? Like they're both not super 
They're just super smart. If you're Batman, you've got this really cool affinity for martial arts. And then you've got the sense of justice that needs to be played out and a sense of responsibility. But yeah, I mean, I wish you could see it just off camera over here. I have this really cool painting that is half Bruce Wayne, half Batman. People started picking up on it. I owe it to Thinkers 50 because they picked up on it and decided to refer to me as the Bruce Wayne of management thinking, which is nice. It was very sweet. I would have preferred the Batman of management thinking, but you know what? Like what? <laughs> I love it. Yeah, I know. I know that quote. In fact, that was where I was going, man. They called you the Bruce Wayne of management thinkers because you challenged the orthodoxy from within battling outdated practices and frankly, writing wrong assumptions. But I like what your son calls you more. He says, you make books, you give talks <laughs> and you take care of us. And that is yeah. just out of the mouths of babes. I love when kids can say what we do. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you for the last, for most of the spring and for the first couple of weeks in the in the fall, that was my most important title was that I was vice principal of Burke Academy as we, <laughs> as we tried to Zoom school our, our kids and get that all at play. The only other line I heard better is I have a buddy of mine whose last name is Moore. And mm-hmm. so they called their Zoom school the More Fun Academy. And the tagline came from their kid that's about the same age as mine. The tagline for the More Fun Academy is, it's not actually that fun. I know, man. Strange times we're living in. And I just got to tell you, bro, I read your book and it triggered me in a very interesting way. Leading from Anywhere is a book that you have coming out. And it's really, it's an essential guide to managing remote teams. The reason it triggered me is I think I had some like trauma that I didn't realize I had. I left corporate (laughs) life about a year ago. And the reason I feel that way is, I mean, I had an amazing corporate ride. Mm. I call it my wave. And I was for 10 years. I mean, I moved up the chain, promotion, promotion, promotion. And I left as a global leader at Tesla. And I loved my experience, all of which was remote, meaning yeah. that I, I managed and, and managed remote teams as big as you know several hundred people. And what your book says and, and the ideas in your book really resonated with me. And I can't wait to dig into the concepts. Before we do, I just want to say, man, the way I think about the work that you've done is you, you're able to translate social science and research in a very digestible and a very relatable way. What I love, and I just highlighted this in that quote, is that you challenge the norms. And so if I were to decode sort of your approach, you take science you convert it to story and you convert those stories into steps or action steps. Am I reading that right in terms of your approach? And and how did you develop that? Yeah. So, I mean, the the line that I use a lot of times is that, I mean, this applied more when there were these things. I used to joke that I'm trying to get good ideas out of the ivory tower and into the corner office. Of course, now it's the corner of a dining room with a little screen (laughs) across it. But no, that's the idea. I mean, I think at the core of it, work is just too important to suck, right? Work is just too central to a lot of our lives. It's not going away. How we're going to do it has been changing pretty quickly this year, but it's actually been changing for a long time. It's important enough to everybody's experience of life to do it right. And so in that regard, if it's to do it right, then the best place we can learn how to do that, in my opinion, is in the social sciences, in the people that study at large sample size. I enjoy reading the books that are, I call them the corporate memoirs, right? The here's how I did it or the profile of the superstar CEO, right? Like I read Ashley Vance's book about Elon and and Tesla and SpaceX and all of that sort of stuff. And I didn't really learn all that much. I mean, it was a cool story, but it's a sample size of one. So what I'm interested in are studies where we surveyed 300 people or when we surveyed like the Google People Analytics Project that we talk about in Leading From Anywhere, where we, we study thousands of people on hundreds of teams and tease that out. That's how you get at the truth, right? Not just these singular stories. They're entertaining. And mm-hmm. so realizing that, that's what's been really my mission is the problem is those ideas stay in the ivory tower because a lot of academics, of which I'm a former professor, don't also get the storytelling thing. I was an undergrad Mm. English major, right? Like I came when I was 18 years old, I thought I was going to be a novelist. So it's this combination of the two things, right? Using stories to outline what we know is actually true about the world of work and then combining that with a couple. So if that's true, do these things. Mm -hmm. I hope it makes for a powerful connection. You tell me, right? I I just (laughs) write what I think will work. You tell me if it's working. (laughs) No, man, it, it makes. And first of all, it's not just your books. It's your videos. It's everything that you do to help get these messages out there. They have a a combined effect that, you know, whether that be interviews that I've listened to or the books that I've read of yours, or or again, the the YouTube videos, which you have, you know, a huge library of videos on YouTube. So it made my job as as somebody who really loves research. I mean, my brain's hurting (laughs) because 
there's just so much knowledge that exists out there. And when you take all this knowledge in, you got to think, right? And part mm-hmm. of thinking is growing. Getting to the, the, your book with remote work, you know, remote work sort of started as telework, as you highlight in your book in the 70s. And although you say it's grown, what you highlight in the book has actually been a slow growth and it's sort of a stunted growth at, at points. And, and I think in 2013, the CEO of, uh, I think it was Yahoo, was it? Uh, yeah. She's put out this memo that says, we got to work together, right? And it starts with the company physically being together, which has created this sort of slow growth. And even as most recently as 2018, what, 3% of the workforce was remote the majority of the time? Well, obviously, we're in a a new era championed by an unorthodox reason. But I'm curious, (laughs) like when you think about why it's grown so slow, is it that there's been people dragging their feet? Is there myths that exist? Like, what is it? Do you think people think productivity is not as strong when in reality it is strong? Curious what you think. Yeah, so you're exactly right. I mean, the, the remote work movement has sort of been one step forward, two steps back, right? Or I guess it'd be, it's been moving. So two steps forward, one step back, right? And this sort of rise and fall and rise and fall. I think one of the biggest things is that for as long as management as a function has been around, which is about a management's about a little more than a hundred year old invention, right? It used mm. to be, and that's actually what's amazing, right? So you think about 200 years ago, most people did work from home. Because they lived over their shop, right? They were merchants Mm -hmm. or they were blacksmiths. Like they lived near their work or they were farmers, right? So they walked out their door and got to work. And then when the industrial economy came in and all of that, that started about 200 years ago, really management as a function about 100 years ago, Frederick Taylor being the one that kicked it off forever, there was this assumption that presence equaled productivity. And it started in the age of the factory because in the age of the factory, Mm. I mean, you couldn't work for, you had to be at the assembly line in order to make the assembly line work. And we did our best under the guise of the Frederick Taylors and the people running these massive factories and, and writing management literature for these massive factories. We did our best to make it as dumb as possible for the actual worker, right? Like the whole idea was that management's job was to think and the employee's job was just to execute. Mm -hmm, So then mm -hmm. management's job very quickly became to watch, to make sure that they're executing. And even when we switched to a knowledge work economy, I mean, the funniest thing is if if you go back and look at pictures of the, the knowledge work offices of the 1940s, 1950s, even 1960s, there were just rows of desks. Like we basically just reassembled the assembly line but with <laughs> desks and phones, right? And that was it. The only place you still really see that now are in these massive open offices that no one's at right now as we speak, or in those sort of boiler room sales organizations, right? But that's it. But that assumption, that presence equals productivity assumption, I mean, it's always been a fairly lazy way to measure which employees are most productive, the ones that come right before the boss shows up and stay after and hide a jacket on the a second jacket on the back of their chair to look like they're always working, right? It's always been there. And it's always been a really lazy way to do it. And actually, the thing that I fear is that even now, as we've moved into this sort of forced work from home experiment, a lot of leaders kept that assumption. and But responsiveness mm. became the new productivity. So how quickly you respond to emails, how often you're checking the stuff. I mean, some companies went so far as to install spy software and that kind of junk on their people's computers, and that, I mean, which is absolutely ridiculous, right? But it all stems from that assumption that presence equals productivity. I mean, it's something that, it, that is dying, but that was what needed to die in order for this to actually explode. And that was what I think explains that two steps forward, one step back rise of remote work is that every time it got to be a bit too much. People freaked out because if I can't watch my people, if I can't manage by walking around, right? We all remember that term. Then I don't know what to do. Well, we took a global pandemic to force you to figure out what to do. And thankfully, a lot of companies have figured it out. Some are still doing the spy software thing, but a lot have figured out. And so hopefully that assumption is broken or at the very least is like hanging on by a thread. And that's a great thing. That's a great thing for pretty much everybody who's ever, especially like in in your own environment, if you ever had an enjoyable experience in remote work, you know what it's like to have a boss Mm -hmm. who separated presence or responsiveness from productivity. And it makes the experience of work a lot better for a, a lot of people. Yeah, that's the big thing that really sort of needs to die for this thing to make sure we don't just all end up back in the office two years from now, still laughing at movies like Office Space because they resonate with our life. Mm-hmm. I hope that the next generation of people doesn't even understand that movie because they're like, what, what is this? People used to live like this? It'll confuse them. And I want to talk about trust in a moment because you, you highlight the spy nature of things and the micromanagement and like that fascinates me. But before we do, one of the things that, I found to be true is I call it the distraction monster, which can find you anywhere. But let's face it, 
it's not so much that working from home increases productivity as much as working from an office decreases productivity. <laughs> when I worked in an office, especially working at a tech company, I worked at Solar City and then Tesla, wide open spaces where mm-hmm. like you can't hear yourself think because there's just so much buzzing going around. You even talk about this. I wonder, like, are the days with this whole open office space, are those days gone or are those days going to come back? I mean, what do you think is going to happen? I'll say this. You don't send 100 million people to work from home for nine months and then just, hey, everybody's got a vaccine, so come on back. Like, that doesn't happen. People don't come back. They like what they built in that nine months. I mean, it was painful because we had to draw Mm -hmm. new boundaries between work and life. We had to develop strategies for new distractions that were cute little kids in our life that were distracting us instead of like, it's pretty easy to tune out coworkers. But you know, our eight-year-old, that's harder. But we figured it out. And so you don't just go, all right, come on back to what we used to come back to. I don't see that happening. At the same time, I don't see the office going away for a couple different reasons. The financial reason would be a lot of places have really long-term leases. And so the idea that they could just walk away and not sacrifice $100 million to the real estate company, like that's okay. So you're still going to have a presence there. Like you still do. I actually think it's amazing. So I've been working on this new book. We came up with the idea post COVID Mm -hmm. and been scrambling to do it as quickly as possible. And everyone at the publishing house is remote. Everybody's working remotely. Everybody's signature line still has the four Park Avenue address in New York City at the bottom of it, right? Which tells me, okay, that headquarters is not going away. At the same time, I think the purpose of the office is going to be a bit different. I think it's primarily going to be to gather. It's going to be for meetings. It's going to be for collaboration sessions. It will be there and available for people who decide it's easier for me to come to the office every day because of what I've got going on in my home life or whatever. I mean, especially in bigger cities, if you're living in New York City still, if you're one of the 20% of people that are still living in New York City, and you're in a studio apartment, 400 square feet, or a multiple bedroom apartment, but you're sharing it with four different people or whatever, you're going to want to go to a space, right? So, Mm -hmm. So the office will still be there, but it'll be there for a very small percentage of people who are there every day. It'll be there for meetings. It'll be there for collaboration sessions, and it'll be there for when you have to travel to meet with colleagues and that sort of stuff. But everyone won't be there all of the time. A very small percentage of employees, you could actually count on being there from eight to five. And that's actually why we settled on a title like leading from anywhere, because I don't think it's a work from home, remote work, virtual work, whatever you want to call it. It's working from anywhere. That's where we're headed to where we have to be okay with the idea that sometimes they're at the office, sometimes they're at their house, sometimes they're on the vacation, but not spending vacation days. I mean, that's actually a whole concept that I think is really sort of outdated. I I thought that beforehand, but this is going to change that as well. Because if you're working from anywhere, why can't I rent a beach house with my kids in June and then I'll work for a couple hours, but they get like, why can't we do that? All of that is already here. And I think it stays here. And so the office becomes a place where we gather. Imagine, though, there's an upside to that. Mm-hmm. Imagine those people who live an hour outside of San Francisco or New York or wherever, or Houston or wherever, and that hour commute into the office is actually enjoyable because you only do it once every two weeks and you only do it to see your whole team and it feels like a reunion. Like, <laughs> totally. that would be awesome. That's what it was like for me. I mean, that is exactly what it was like for me my entire time. And I didn't mind it because it was the rarity. It wasn't the norm. Yeah. So that's where I think we're headed. So I think even though there will be an end point at some time to this world where everyone is working remotely, I think as a team leader, you ought to figure out how to lead a remote team because even when they come back, they're not all coming back and they're not all coming back at the same time. So in perpetuity, your team will be hybrid, will be semi-remote. And so you might as well figure out how to learn the best lessons from, from what we know from the research, from the experiences of fully distributed companies. We might as well learn from it because that's where we're headed. As I say, I think in the book, the tagline type thing is that the future of work really is this working from anywhere thing, which means the future of leading teams is leading from anywhere. That's why we called it that. Yeah. Well, I think also, I mean, we need to prepare both mentally and strategically for how to do that. Not only how to lead teams, but how to lead ourselves and how to act responsibly and use proven methods to keep ourselves on track. Because even though it may be that working from an office does lead to being less productive, it doesn't mean that we can't work to be more productive when we are working anywhere. One of the things that you highlight, which I really love, and I'm totally adopting this, is this concept called work sprints. Talk about that, specifically what you did with your book. Yeah, so work sprints, I actually found it accidentally, and I'll I'll tell you that whole story. But the short answer is that work sprints are where they're really a tool for being productive, but also for building bonds on a team. And in a work sprint, you basically coordinate with a coworker, and you jump on a Zoom or a WebEx or a Microsoft Teams, you jump on a video call. 
and you talk a little bit and then you get to work. The video screen goes back to the back of your window, but it stays on because that other person is there sort of watching you. And then you could take designated breaks. What I did, and it started accidentally, is my friend Amy Cuddy, the also brilliant writer, who's working on two books at the same time during quarantine, which I just think is insane. She started this thing called Quarantine Writing Hour, where basically Mm -hmm. everybody who followed her on social media who was also a writer, let's all write at 11 a.m. Eastern time every day. And then I kind of partnered with her and was like, you know what would be really cool is if we could start having you do interviews with different writers and that sort of stuff and sort of design the different announcements and social media stuff. But she handled most of the facilitation. And then when it was sort of over, right, when the initial three or four weeks was kind of over and, I, you know, she, I, she kept it going but moved it from every day to multiple days and it just died out because not everybody was in full on lockdown anymore. I reached out to two friends of mine who I knew were sort of a part of it and said, hey, let's keep this going with the three of us. And so the three of us would meet usually at 11 a.m. Central time this time instead of Eastern. I don't know how I swung that because I'm Central time and they're not, but I somehow talked them into working on my calendar. And we would jump on at 11. We'd say hi, we'd chat for about five minutes and then we'd write. And then uh, right at the bottom of the hour, we would talk about what we just worked on, what questions we have, et cetera. And then after about five minutes, we'd go at it again. And then that would take us to noon. And then noon, we would just kind of hang out, talk. It was just a nice break. But it helps you, especially for those of us extroverts, it helps you realize you're not alone. It helps you stay productive and on task because when others are watching, you stay on task. The other thing that I found is that it really helps with, we were talking about distractions earlier, it really helps eliminate the distraction of other people who are in your living space. Because when you have to work and work is just responding to email, it's really easy for people to feel like they can interrupt you. But when you've got a conference call on the calendar, they know to stay away. It's almost like scheduling the conference call just so you can do the solitary work. (laughs) Just so your eight-year-old doesn't come in (laughs) at that time. Exactly, exactly right. Although the eight and the six-year-old both had to learn, we developed sort of a do not disturb code over time that actually we had done long before this, but it's always sort of worked. I have this little red do not disturb sign. I bought a pack of 10 Mm. of them for like $2 on Amazon. It's really three visual cues, right? If the doors are open, when they come home from school or whatever, they can just come on in and we'll talk for a little while. And then after five or 10 minutes, usually they get tired talking and me and they go grab an iPad and have more fun. If the doors close, knock and tell me what you want, what you need. And if I open it, then we'll, you know, we'll talk. And if the little red do not disturb sign is on the door, turn around and go back upstairs. Don't touch the door. Don't yell my name. Don't say any of it. Just go back upstairs. Unless you're bleeding, go back upstairs. (laughs) And it took a while to get them in the ribbit of that. But again, that's the thing that I think we still really need to nail to your point about limiting distractions. It didn't change. It's just who's distracting us. We used to have to set boundaries with coworkers in these giant obnoxious open offices. Now we have to set boundaries with cohabitators. But it's the same solution, right? Which is this idea of building out those people boundaries. I'm going to take that one too, because I do have an eight-year-old who still barges in, but how he knows, especially I'll have to lock the door sometimes when I'm recording, just because that's a no-no for sure. He has walked in once while I'm recording, but I think to your point is you got to develop some sort of a system in this new environment. The thing that is a through line in a lot of your work is this through line of this idea of having a shared purpose Mm -hmm. and this idea of like, hey, what are we fighting for? And and as you know, I I came from Tesla, so we definitely had that there. Yeah. And it's a very mission-oriented company. But I know a lot of companies don't have that. So I'm curious, as you say, people don't want to join a company. They want to join a crusade. They want to join a, a cause. So for an entrepreneur or a business out there that is either struggling or having some issues, what are some ideas or suggestions you have to help get them pointed in the right direction to make sure they have that rally cry? I would say for an entrepreneur, especially or a small business owner, most of them do, right? There is a such thing as a founder's vision. There's a reason, there's a story. You might need some help phrasing out that story. But when you're a small organization, you've got it. And because your people are interacting with you on a day-to-day basis, they catch it. The real problems creep up when there becomes a third layer, right? When everyone is reporting to you, no problem. This sort of your charisma, it all just sort of rubs off on people. But when there's an intermediate layer now and not everyone answers to you, or in the case of a virtual work environment, not everyone sees you every day, it becomes a whole lot harder. And this is where most large organizations struggle, right? Most, if you're a company more than like 50 people, some consultant sold you on the need to write a mission statement. And so you did. You went on a weekend workshop, you paid that dude 10 grand, he led you through and you all wrote this thing about shareholder value and innovation and integrity and blah, blah, blah. And you threw it on the front of your 10K if you're publicly traded, you engraved it on a plaque and threw it in the office and everybody promptly forgot what it was because the words are meaningless. So both of those things are actually the same challenge, big company or small company. 
The challenge is translating that purpose into people's day-to-day job, right? And that's where, like you said, I think it works better if it's a rallying cry. My litmus test, the way this whole thing started, my litmus test when working with organizations is instead of saying, can you name the company mission statement? Because so many people just couldn't. What I would ask employees is I would say, hey, you know, if you think about Tesla, what are we fighting for? Even if you've never used battle language before, that's fine. But if you get like fight and the crusade and the cause, I don't mean fight like we're fighting for market share and competitors. I mean, the bigger thing, right? That the fact that our current system of driving around cars is killing the planet and we're fighting to survive by creating a different way. If you can answer that question, then you've done a really good job translating that purpose. But most people haven't. That's my litmus test. And then what I laid out is that I think most organizations that have settled on a purpose, can fit one of three templates, or I shouldn't say can, should fit one of three templates if they're looking to actually engage and inspire people, right? And I call them the revolutionary fight, the underdog fight, and the ally fight. And the revolutionary fight is about changing an industry. Tesla's a great example of this, right? You don't take all mm-hmm. of your patents and just go, here you go, unless you're really focused on starting a revolution in the industry. So that's the idea. You know you're in a revolutionary fight when you can say like that the status quo is this, or the industry says this is acceptable, and we refuse to accept that. And then there's the underdog fight, which isn't just about being small. It's about being underrated. You can be a big company and still be an underdog. It's about whether or not the establishment players, the people who are paid to critic, criticize, et cetera, it's about whether or not they accept you or reject you and then how you're going to prove them wrong. So the underdog fight is much more about the prove them wrong. I was born in Philadelphia. I love the underdog fight. We're always underdogs. I mean, our greatest sports hero is a fictional character who loses a boxing match. But even in Rocky, he talks to Adrian at one point about how he doesn't want to win. He doesn't care if he wins. He just wants to go the distance. And then if he gets the decision or not, that's fine. He just wants to go the distance because then he'll prove that he's not a bum. And it turns out there's a ton of research around this sort of proving the critics wrong motivation. And then the last fight is the ally fight, which is actually really simple. The ally fight is it's not about us at all. It's not about our fight at all. It's about them and what they're fighting for. And then as an organization, we exist to help them win their fight. And you get to define them however you want. It doesn't have to be customers. It can be stakeholders. It can be the environment. It can be whatever. You get to define them. But you do have to make a clear, concise statement about how the work that you do helps them win that fight. Mm, yeah, I love that, man. Well, I mean, look, you call it this superordinate goal, you know, and, yeah. and, and you know, one of the things that I had a guest previously, she, she says, you have to have a compelling purpose. It's got to be a compelling purpose. And so many people are wrapped around the spokes with this whole mission statement, but it becomes garbly gook and it, it ends up in a drawer, right? Yep. Let's put that aside because I think, I think they get it. Now, I think the next part of that equation is once you have a, a workforce that is rallying around a central compelling purpose or a subordinate goal, you want to make sure that they all feel included. And mm-hmm. so let's get practical. You lay this out in four areas. You say leveling the playing field, sharing the pain, finding the FICA, and then watching the water cooler. So can you break those down for me? The first two go hand in hand. So leveling the playing field and sharing the pain are about, it's about the little things you do, especially as we head into the work from anywhere world and the hybrid organization and that sort of stuff. It's going to be really easy for, this is the biggest temptation for co-located people to feel like they're us and for remote workers to feel like the them. It's really easy for sort of that otherism to creep up. And it used to be, organizations do this all the time, man. Silos, politics, and turf wars are not a new thing. The difference is that we're headed for a place where it's less about function and more about how often do I see you? And so when it comes to making them feel encouraged, it's not about the the grandiose, like superordinate goals are great for motivating people towards, but you gotta pay attention to the little things you do too that send these subtle messages. And so leveling the playing field is about that. What are the little things you're doing that might send a subtle message that these people who are out there working remotely most of the time are less important, right? Like one of my favorite examples of a level the playing field policy is the company Basecamp, which is like you could just just studying Basecamp, you could get halfway to everything you need to know about leading a remote team. I know, right? Insane. (laughs) One of their rules for meetings, because they have a Chicago office, not everybody uses it, but you could be at it. And their rule is that if even one person can't be at the in-person meeting, then it is now a virtual meeting. That means that that doesn't mean we're going to have four people in a conference room and then two other people are going to be up on the board via the Cisco systems or whatever. It means everybody go back to your desk, open up your computer and get on Zoom or Teams or whatever, right? That way, everybody is the same square little box in it. There's a level playing field. And one of the other ways you can level the playing field is what we talked about was share the pain. Share the pain refers to the time zones thing. 
if you're scheduling meetings every, I, I think this is funny because I just talked about how in my work sprint, I convinced my two coworkers. <laughs> if you're scheduling meetings at the time that's convenient for you all the time and you're not rotating it around, you're sending a message that your time zone is more important and theirs isn't. Now, the difference on my on my work sprints thing is we, we don't actually work through, they don't work for me. I don't, we're just friends. And that time happened to work for everybody. But as a manager, if you just say, hey, you know what? Back when we were in person, our meetings, our Monday all hands meeting happened at 10 a.m. So let's just keep it at 10 a.m. Well, half your people don't live in the same time zone anymore. And we're going to keep seeing that, by the way. I'm really short on big cities and real estate in big cities because why? We're headed to that place where you've got to be respectful of that and share the pain means you rotate that around, that you each take an inconvenient time every once in a while so that everybody has a convenient time for them moving forward. That's a form of leveling the playing field. Fika is this really fun that I think every company should adopt. Didn't come from Basecamp, came from a different company. And Fika is a Swedish word. It refers to sort of the ritual of having coffee with friends. But it's not really about the coffee. Like it's about the conversation. It usually happens during the day. It's socially acceptable to cut out from work and go Fika with somebody. Could be a coworker, a colleague, could be a, just a friend. You never know where friendships and business relationships go anyway. But it's, it's totally socially acceptable to just go do that in the middle of the day. Like we would, in the US, the closest thing I could liken it to would be meeting up for drinks after work. But that's the mm -hmm. idea. It's not after work. It's part of work. It's part of our social environment. A lot of really good remote teams with a strong culture will do some variation of that. They may call it FICA. They may not. But it's the idea that we're going to partner people up. And we're just going to take a break together, sort of like a work sprint, but we're not talking about work. The point of it is to take a break, but to take a social break where we talk and hang out with each other for 20, 30 minutes. And ideally, you, you sort of randomize it or you rotate through who on the team you're interacting with. I encourage most organizations to think beyond the team, and it's actually more about meeting people from other teams, any of those sort of work. So that's Fika. And then the very one around Watch the Water Cooler is really just about Everybody sort of built their, their water cooler, their back channel, their Slack channel, their, their way that they do sort of social talk on the team. Nobody ever talked about sort of work at the water cooler. They talked about Monday Night Football or they talked about what happened at Friends or they, you know, they talked about social things. And if you have something like a Slack channel or a WhatsApp group or whatever that is meant for non-work conversations and people start talking about work, then it very quickly just becomes another thing to check. Like the goal with, if you replace the physical water cooler with a digital one, the goal should be to create a space where no one feels obligated to be there, but everybody feels welcome when they do check in. That's why I say watch the water cooler, not just create one. You've got to monitor it to make sure that like if a work-related thing pops up, you say, hey, can we switch that over to email? Or can we put that in the project management software? This isn't the right place to have that conversation. And that way it feels like, like a Slack channel people can dip into when they want to take a little social break and check in with their team. That has a strong social function to make people feel included. But again, if you're just talking about work all the time, they just feel like it's another thing they have to check. So it should be an environment where everybody feels welcome, but nobody feels obligated. Yeah, sometimes it's those work moments that you would get. That's one of the advantages of being present, being there in person. It's passing in the hallway. It's it's those moments before a meeting starts. It's the moments after a meeting. It's the drinks after. It's all those things. You want to recreate those. And you've just outlined some really, really creative ways to do so. Let's talk about trust. You say trust isn't necessarily given and it's not earned. Then what is it? <laughs> it's reciprocated. So I mean, trust is a chemical, like every emotion in your mind, there is a chemical that corresponds to it. In the case of trust, it's usually the chemical oxytocin, which is often called the love chemical because it's something that is released in our bodies when we are with our loved ones, when we're holding babies. There's a bunch of different ways it's used, but it, it is, but the researcher Paul Zak has done an amazing amount of research showing that it correlates to trust, like the higher level oxytocin that's in your body the more likely you are to trust the people that are around you. And the interesting thing is that, that it goes back and forth. So if I trust you and you observe me trusting you in a way, then you then feel trusted and reciprocate in, in kind. So it's reciprocated back and forth. From a leadership perspective, what this actually means is that the give, earn, reciprocate, it doesn't matter. It means you go first. You demonstrate that you trust your people mm, and then okay. they will trust you back in return. You do that, you build up that trust over time. I don't know that there is ever a moment where you can say, 
it's earned. You could say it's given, right? As a leader, you give it first and then you trust that you'll build it up. But the goal here should be just a constant cycle of increasing our individual trust of each other over time and then recognizing when trust is violated that it will take time to build it back as well matters. But yeah, trust is reciprocated. It's, it's an ongoing cycle. It's a flywheel, if you will. And the goal should be to keep that flywheel going, recognize when it stops and get it going again. But it isn't this binary moment. And mm -hmm. usually it means if you're in a leadership role, it means you go first. Right. And conventional wisdom going, expanding upon this whole trust concept tells us that we should, or companies have historically hidden what they pay each other, which you have a fantastic premise on the advocating for pay transparency, yeah. which to me like is the quintessential trust factor. It's like, if you could be trusted enough to share what everybody's making, that just shows that there is equity in, in terms of people getting paid for similar types of work. Can you share a little bit about your thoughts on that? Yeah, so it's exactly that. It's also a lot of other policies too. Like I said before, I'm not a big fan of vacation days because they communicate that I don't trust you to distinguish between work and life and whatever. Expense report policies, all, all of this. Sort of, most policies, especially the ones that diminish trust, are usually the result of one person taking advantage of the system. And then in addition to firing that person, we go, let's make sure this never happens again. And that affects everybody because one brought apple. Right. And like, no, the solution is just fire that person. And then you have, if, if that's one person out of 100, now you have 99 trustworthy people. And then you go find another trustworthy person. The solution is not to create such a massive amount of red tape that it'll never happen again. It's to get rid of the dude that broke everybody's trust. Anyway, as that pertains to, to pay transparency, you're exactly right. So especially in the Western world and especially in North America, there is this sort of taboo around salary information. And trust me, I get it, man, because I gave a TED talk on this like four years ago and I still get hate mail. I get that it's an uncomfortable thing. I get the argument that pay should be a private contract between an employer and an employee. The, pr the problem with that argument is that even if we do that, if you don't have good data on what the employer is doing, how can you possibly negotiate a decent contract for yourself? So it's about increasing information or decreasing information asymmetry, even in that private conversation. Now, I don't think that every organization needs to get to the point of a company like, say, Buffer, where you could just check the list and see what everybody mm -hmm. gets paid, what their salary is and why. And Buffer uses a formula to calculate it. But I do think most people should release the formula or the tiers. I don't know a lot of organizations anymore. Like it's 2020. I don't know a lot of organizations that say we keep pay secret because we're trying to rip people off. Like that's not, I don't, I don't know a single person that works in HR whose goal is to do that. They keep it secret because they're worried about there being a catastrophe if somebody finds out. Well, the secrecy actually aids the catastrophe, right? Because what causes the catastrophe is, oh my God, Billy gets that much. He doesn't deserve that. Instead of just knowing, oh, he gets that much because this is how we calculate pay and he's got the requisite years of experience and he's got the right performance rating and like, that's fine. Adults can reconcile those things in their mind. So the secrecy causes the catastrophe. If you are, especially if you've developed a system where the goal is fairness, then the, the way to get people to believe it's fair is transparency. Sunlight's always been the best disinfectant. I forget who actually said that, but it's true. And so I don't think we have to get to the point where most organizations know specifically, I can go to a Google doc and go, oh, Billy, Billy makes this much. But if I can go, oh, you know, Billy's a, a national director, national directors are tier four, tier four gets paid this, that would be great. Or even just the formula. And then if I wanted to go, hey, Billy, how many years you worked here and do the calculation, like that would be great. The point is, however you're determining what pay is, if you let people know that, they're much more likely to trust that it's a fair system. And I'd go further and say, if you let them know what that system is and they have a disagreement, now they have recourse, right? So you might have uncomfortable conversations, but that's still gonna help people feel heard, people feel fairly treated, et cetera, because now you can have the conversation. In a secrecy condition, there was no conversation. And there are horror stories of people who have tried to bring that up and tried to fight for fairness and gotten fired and National Labor Relations Board in the US has to get involved and the whole thing's a disaster. It's easier just to go, hey, here are the tiers and you're a tier five. And here's what you need to do to move up in the org chart to become a tier four. Or here's the formula. You chose to live in this city. So there's this cost of living adjustment or whatever. I'm actually not a big fan of cost of living adjustments in a future remote work world, but that's a whole other monologue. Whatever the formula <laughs> is, the formula is. I'm super intrigued by companies that are doing it right. You talked about Basecamp. Another company that comes to mind is Netflix. You talked about Buffer. Like, who are the companies? And not just about trust, but just generally speaking, which companies are like, 
badass that you love <laughs> that you that you look at and you say, wow, this is a company that should be a model that other companies follow and should be studied. Like Basecamp's a great example of a company that should be studied. I've talked about it on other shows as well. Yeah. So Basecamp for sure. I mean, it comes to remote work, Basecamp for sure. I'm also a big fan of Automatic, Matt Mullenweg mm-hmm. and company. Netflix, interestingly enough, Reed Hastings has said some interesting things about where he thinks remote work is headed and where it's not. That doesn't seem to reconcile with the idea of the sort of sports franchise idea, et cetera. So I will say, Reed and Aaron Meyer, who's a business school professor at INSEAD that I really admire, just published a book that I have not had the chance to read yet. So I'm going to pass judgment on them. The ones that I'm looking at usually actually are not American, or I guess it's not fair to call a global company like Buffer American. I'm a big fan of Birdsog over in Europe. Birdsog is a healthcare organization that is about a thousand employees. And there is only two tiers. There is the CEO, founder, owner, and everyone else, right? Mm-hmm. And everyone else is sort of self-managed into these smaller teams that are about five to 10 people of nurses. So it's, I mean, it's a massive healthcare organization that is entirely self-managed teams. I'm a big fan of Hire in China. That organization's re- sort of reinvention as instead of one massive multiple tens of thousands of employees companies, there are individual business units that do contracts with other individual business units. And the whole thing is sort of self-managing. And the, and the reason I'm a big fan of those is not only do they have the sort of trust and autonomy piece that we've been talking about, I think that model is a bit more resilient. The model of most organizations is pretty similar to a military model, or actually the first org chart that was ever created was to get trains to run on time. But in both situations, you have sort of the definition of assumptions that things aren't going to change. And most of the military now is the VUCA model. That's not what I'm talking. I'm talking about like the 1800s, where the military model was, let's get a bunch of people in red coats to line up and shoot at each other. When that's your sort of model, you have a very, very powerful way to send orders down. Mm-hmm. and nothing else. You don't have a very powerful way to people to communicate laterally, and you don't have a very resilient organization because it can't change all that much. That's why America won the Revolutionary War and the War of 1812. We didn't fight fair. We fought resilient, right? And we self-managed teams and all of this sort of stuff. I think the same thing in organizations, not to abuse a military analogy, but like the org chart, the traditional way of organizing everybody was great for top-down communication. It can even work well for bottom-up communication, but it doesn't work well for lateral and it doesn't work well when the market changes, right? And we had a we had a great example of that when some dude ate a bat and a month later the world shut down. It was the resilient exactly. organizations that have survived better. So those are the models that I'm really studying now. Some of them are remote oriented, but those are the models that have been most fascinating with this. How can we break this up and turn it into a lot more self-managed teams united by that common purpose, but much more resilient because we can change much quicker when we see changes in the marketplace and that sort of thing. Right. United, included, trusted. And you talk a lot about communication, which is perfect dovetail into the last topic I want to talk about here is this communication, which you talk about automatic and they have a really interesting approach to interviewing. Ultimately, communication is a fascinating thing to dissect. And and the, the first topic I want to talk about is this comparison between synchronous versus asynchronous communication. Like, that's super mind-blowing and, and important to, to study. So love that, man. Share some knowledge. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so that that's the big first question for any team that's going to make this work from anywhere thing work or the remote work thing work is you need to have the conversation. It probably has to be a synchronous one at first. You need to have the conversation with your team about what things are okay to communicate asynchronously, meaning that we just put it out there and we wait for replies and we don't demand an immediate response. And then also, what are the expectations? Different mediums should probably have different expectations for communication. It's funny, most people would tell you a reasonable amount of time to wait for a reply to an email is 24 hours. But we don't act that way, right? Because we send an email at 8 a.m. and we haven't heard anything by noon, we call them and go, hey, did you see this? Like, you sent it via email. So you chose that medium. In the absence of those established norms, those sort of things happen. But in the presence of those norms, if we have this agreement that these are our rules for asynchronous communication, then awesome, right? And then we also talk about what things need to be communicated synchronously. Time is a big constraint, right? If you need a reply within an hour, you should most definitely call them, et cetera, because that you're going to need that reply. If you're having a meeting with more than three people, yeah, it should probably be synchronous rather than just trading voicemails or whatever. But you need to have that conversation with your team. The two different types of communication have themselves different mediums, and then the different mediums have different rules. And if you don't come to an agreement 
with your team about what those are. And there is no right answer other than expecting people to reply to your email at 1130 at night is always the wrong answer. Other than that, there are no right answers. There's just what works for your team. Mm -hmm. I'm a big fan of that. Let's split that out and let's decide what things warrant synchronous communication and what things don't. The default should be to asynchronous because asynchronous allows people to focus and not be distracted. But I recognize that there are things that need to be synchronously communicated. I just want teams to decide ahead of time what they are. Right. And it does come back to expectations. As long as the approach and the communication style is determined, like, hey, how are we going to operate? And it's clear to everybody that they're not upset when they don't get an immediate response to a text or to an email or to whatever. And, and I, I know firsthand, as do you, that email is quite often what people are glued to all day long. And it's at the expense of actually being productive and getting work done. One of the things that you highlight, which I find really interesting, is this concept. I'm really interested as a podcaster is this concept of the voice, specifically yeah. voice, voice communication and how it elicits the highest rate of empathetic accuracy. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so this is an interesting assumption, right? Because there's that common wisdom that 93% of communication is nonverbal. And therefore, if you're only having text-based communication, you're going to have miscommunications. And part of that is true. It's not 90%. We don't know what it is. That's from a really poorly designed right, study. That's, that yeah, got that's totally taken out of context. <laughs> but yeah, and I love how you comment on that in the right. book. That's it's good. just a little aside. But yeah, there is something to nonverbals, tone of voice, facial expressions, et cetera. What's interesting, and I think this is less a statement about humans throughout time and more a statement about the way we've behaved in the last hundred years, we're much more trained to sense people's emotions through voice than anything else. And so a series of studies, mostly conducted by Michael Krauss, showed that basically if you had people have the same conversation, but some of them had it via video and some of them had it via phone, or some of them had it in a lightened room or some of them had it in a dark room people were much more likely to be able to judge the emotions of the other person when they only had the voice. The working explanation for that is that you have to sort of tune in a little harder. I think most of our, especially our video stuff, most of it is broken in the sense that it's all too easy to accidentally be on Facebook during that team Zoom meeting. I wouldn't even call it accidentally. I just call it, I got bored. There is something there in terms of empathic accuracy, et cetera. So what I say in the book actually is the eyes aren't the window to the soul, the voice boxes. It turns out that if we can listen into that, we end up judging that a bit more. And if you worked on a team for longer than like a day, you know that emotions are part of how you communicate with your team. Like there are no Spocks in the real world that just communicate with zero emotion and all logic, right? There are some people that get pretty close, but emotion is always there. Based on that, I'm a big fan of rediscovering the phone. The other thing we know is that phone conversations, voice-only conversations tend to be shorter. Part of that is because if we want a Zoom call, we have to like coordinate it, schedule it. I, right. have to, I have to know what shirt to wear. We talked about that before we started recording. Because I think because of the empathic accuracy, because of the amount of information that gets conveyed, it's just shorter. So a seven-minute quick phone call to you when something pops up that our team has agreed is a reason for a synchronous conversation, that moves the ball forward a lot faster than me emailing you and going, hey, Billy, could you jump on Zoom at two o'clock today? And then we put it on our calendars for 30 minutes. And then it takes 30 minutes instead of just calling you at 11 and saying, hey, Billy, I need to talk about this. Can you call me back whenever you're free? That actually tends to work better. The weirdest thing in this remote work environment is that we all seem to forget that telephones were a thing. We know the device exists because we text on it and we get on Facebook on it and we watch Netflix on it, but we forgot that it makes phone calls and that those are actually a great thing. And it is because to your point, it's like when you schedule a video call, it's never like a seven minute video call. It's right. always at least 15 minutes. And that's being generous. It's mostly 30 minute hour. Right. And so now you've blocked up way more time and haven't accomplished much more. Even though we both agree that that study that was done years and years ago isn't true. It is true that things could get misconstrued. This concept of assume positive intent. And I'll just tell you from my personal experience, I worked for a guy named Ben Putterman, who his mentor was Liz Wiseman, who I know you know. Oh, yeah. and, and so I don't know if that if that was a, a through line there because I've talked about it now. This is my third episode, having had Liz and Ben on my show and now having you. I just want to carry through because assuming positive intent is such a valuable thing to remember. Yeah. It's one of the most important things that I took from my experience working for Ben. So talk about why you feel that's so important. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Liz is awesome. I'll, I'll tell you what, I'm sorry I had today with a friend of mine who we were talking about social media. We were talking about a bunch of different stuff. And I said, well, are you on Twitter? And she goes, no, nah, I never really figured out how it works. And I said, okay, well, picture Instagram, but there are no pictures. It's just the caption. And she said, and this is an exact quote. She said, 
that sounds horrible. And she's right, right? If you ever go onto Twitter, you realize it's just <laughs> it's just people yelling at each other, right? <laughs> and the reason it's people yelling at each other is that it's entirely text. And little accidental sarcasms, really hard to convey. Dry humor, really hard to convey. Even like just, I picked the wrong adjective for your cultural context, really hard to convey. I mean, we do this all the time. How many times in your life, it's at least more than a dozen, where you've sent a text message to a friend who totally misunderstood it, and then you're in this big argument. Happened to me yesterday. Literally yesterday, I was texting back and forth with a friend of mine. Actually, I thought this was pretty forward because he's Canadian. And he said, you know, I got to tell you, you sound like a jerk when you say this. And I was like, oh, that was not my intent, right? So <laughs> right, I know right, this. Right. I studied it. I wrote it in the book, and yet I still do it. We all do. The solution is just to assume, if, unless you have any information to assume otherwise, you should assume that they're writing positively in a good frame of mind because just the probability is they are. There's this actual research on the idea that we have this sort of negativity bias when reading things that are actually neutral. Like we do that, it's been proven. The solution to that is just 95% of the time, we don't send angry text messages or emails or that sort of thing. So assume that the person was in a positive state of mind when they sent you that message, and you're much less likely to misconstrue them. It, the, the, the errors usually swing to that, assuming the negative when it actually wasn't. It's certainly possible you could assume positive when they actually meant to chew you out. That's a lot harder to do if you start from a place of assuming positivity, though. Mm, what a great insight. And you are a wealth of insights, my friend. You ran the gamut on these questions, man. You did your research. So I applaud you for that. Well, thank you, man. I having interviewed Jordan Harbinger and having that as a life goal to be is somewhere in the atmosphere of, of doing research like he does. I take the research very seriously. And frankly, it's my favorite part of doing this is learning by research and learning about you and your books and all the work that you've done. Speaking of which, you can be found at davidberkus.com. That's B-U-R-K-U-S, as well as on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, YouTube, as I mentioned. They're all the same, except for I know Facebook, you put a doctor in there, even though I know you don't typically like to be called doctor because you leave that for your wife, of course. I who, do. I leave that for my, who actually <laughs> heals people. I just try to heal organizations. So friend of a friend, under new management, myths of creativity, pick a fight, and the new book, which we talked a lot about today, Leading from Anywhere, all of which challenge the status quo, help us think differently. David Burkus, thank you for being on Inside Out. Oh man, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Inside Out. I hope you took away some valuable insights that will help you in business and in life. If you like this show, the best payment you can give is to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform. You can also listen to past episodes and see a breakdown of all the best insights by going to insightoutshow.com. And for the record, there's no greater compliment than sharing this show with your friends on social media. So if there's an insight or a lesson that you liked, please share it and tag both me and today's guest. And until next time, remember, your next life-changing breakthrough moment may happen when you least expect it. Insight out.